This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Episode 253 of the Show Before the Show podcast arrives on your uh, little device there, whatever you're holding or, uh, or tuned into or whatever it is, wherever you're listening. Hi. Hey. Hopefully at home. Hopefully you are listening <laughs> yeah. safely from the comfort of your home. No, I just meant like wherever in your abode. You're right. In the, you're in the kitchen. You're in the bathroom. We don't judge. We don't judge. Mental free zone. Podcast no. is a good time to listen to podcasts. When, you're getting... when do you listen to your podcasts? Um, uh, I, I these like times, listening Tyler? to podcasts if I am cooking something, especially or cleaning. Uh, I listen to podcasts mostly then uh, or nowadays. Uh, whenever I'm doing anything in the yard, which um, until it was the middle of April and we were getting snow in Denver, uh, the last like week prior to this week. I guess I could have just said the week prior to this week. Um, I was doing a lot of like yard work and stuff like that, which is great. Uh, and that is the best time for me for podcasts um, because I kind of get to just zone out from whatever I'm doing. If it's something that is like monotonous enough, like last week, you know, I'm like sanding and painting a dog house. I can do that just on like, I don't have to focus a lot on that. So then I can also listen to a guy talk about world war one for four hour episodes each, which is something that I've done in a six part series. It's called hardcore history. If you're super into being a, <laughs> being a nerd like me, what about you? When do you listen? Uh, I listen usually in the mornings. Um, I try to get morning walks in uh, during this time, just because I, I'm so used to having a semi-long commute going into Manhattan. I don't have that anymore, so it's so weird to just roll out of bed straight to work. There are days when I do that, obviously, yeah. but um, I, I live right next to Prospect Park here in Brooklyn. I try to get a walk in into the park, wearing a mask, keeping my distance, doing all the right stuff. Um, so I'll listen to, to stuff in the morning. I'll, I'll listen to stuff while I'm doing dishes. Uh, I'll sometimes listen during the day, but sometimes I find myself constantly starting and stopping because uh, I'll start working on something for work, reading something, writing something. And I, I'm one of those people – uh, I'm sure people who've been in the car with me think I'm a madman, but if I'm trying to pay attention, I'll turn down the radio. Oh, I do that as too. If that, Why don't we all yeah. do that? I, I think it's just any input that we're putting into our brains. Yeah, if we can less distracting. That. That's true. Right. When, I remember when, my mom, the- when I was like a kid and you know, you're going to somebody's house for a birthday party or something you haven't been to before. I remember my mom would always do that. And I would always make fun of her. I'd be like 11 years old and she'd be looking for like seven Four two Evergreen Terrace, and she would turn down. That's a Simpsons address for anybody. She would turn down the radio. I'm like, how is turning down the radio going to help you see the numbers on the sides of these houses? But anyway, it's uh, I identify with that. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. Then, then you I became an too. older person yeah. yourself, right? <laughs> Although it's it's funny that you mentioned doing it during yard work. I don't have a yard to do yard work in, but uh, when I used to, you know, grew up in Western Mass, uh, I used to do apartment maintenance in one place I worked at that included doing the yard. And I remember I used to listen to the radio. I had an MP3 player, but it had radio frequency on it. So I was listening to the radio, and this is back in, before Bluetooth. 
headphones were really a thing. So I had it plugged into my pocket and I was doing a hedge trimming and I just went and I'm like, oh, it went out. I wonder if I lost the radio broadcast. And I literally trimmed right through the headphones. So please don't do that. Yeah, that was a that was a mistake. But those were back when like headphones, the the cheapo plug in ones were like 10 bucks. So I just went to CVS and got another pair. But uh, yeah, don't do that. If yeah. you're listening at home, yeah, it's not a, it's not a great thing. Put us down for five minutes. Head, yeah. trim your hedges, trim and then hedges, pick us up. Again. Sands cord. Do a wireless trimming of the hedges. Um, so hey, we welcome you into this week's episode of the show. Before the show, he's Sam Dykstra. I am Tyler Mon. Uh, episode two fifty three, as noted. We got a lot coming up for you today. Tyler Stevenson, the third ranked Cincinnati Reds prospect, joins the show coming up here in a little bit. Uh, I think we talked for Tyler for about a half hour in the interview, and then about a half hour after the interview was over, um, he was just a, an absolute delight for us to catch up with. And uh, you know, Sam and I were discussing. It's so weird right now being in such uncharted territory for all of these conversations, but it's been really neat how, you know, we had Josh Young on last week from the Texas Rangers organization. I feel like all the guys that we've talked to during this time of, of social distancing and isolation and quarantine, we're getting such interesting interviews because we're all in such uncharted territory. And Tyler Stevenson coming up today uh, is just fantastic. A great conversation for Reds fans or anybody else uh, who's interested. The the catching prospect for the Reds joins us here in a little bit. We'll hear from Benjamin Hill coming up uh, in a short while. Uh, Michael Avalon will join us later for a, uh, a discussion about his story on the integration of the Texas League, which is especially relevant today because Jackie Robinson Day uh, around baseball. And uh, unfortunately, we're not seeing it on the field, but we are uh, seeing some really cool stuff on social media from MLB and from MILB as well. Um, and uh, a lot more to come on the show today. We've uh, got uh, a fun thing coming up in the next couple of weeks, and that's what we're going to start discussing. Uh, And we are going to tease it, and there's a a chance that we're going to screw it up and we're going to have to push it back and and, and all stuff like that. But we have faith in ourselves that we're going to get it done and we're going to get it done right. So you see all these things around the world today there's the mlb players league uh teams that have been simming their schedules and posting games uh onto social media and stuff on mlb the show and such well we heard you and by you i mean my college friend greg williams who tweeted loudly at me about this and also a couple other people to to their credit who also uh had emailed or or texted or uh, tweeted at me and sam asking for something similar and uh they want a game between uh, a couple of teams that Sam and I hop on a broadcast for prospect laden squads on MLB the show and Sam and I are planning on doing that uh, in a couple of weeks as it sits right now what we're going to do is uh, we'll draft teams next week and then the following week we'll do the broadcast we'll upload it uh, to all kinds of different spots where you can watch it and uh, and we're we're going to try not to screw it up but I believe in us I believe in us and I believe in myself specifically because I, I think my team is going to beat your team. Ah, um, I want to start that early. Yeah, okay. Let, let's tease out the trash talk this Just early. Two weeks worth of trash talk before <laughs> before this one simulated game that we're going to do. We're not going to we play need... each other. We should We should clarify that. We're just going to put these teams together and sim the game. Right, and then it's going to be us talking over it. So you're right. not going to hear me telling Tyler, "Look out for the cutter coming," because right. it's right. it's not going to be that. It's gonna basically it going to be sort of as though like, it's a broadcast. Right, and luckily we have 
a really, really good play-by-play person and somebody who has never really done color commentary other than in his own living room uh, to are himself. You, are you calling a play-by-play person for this? Is there somebody <laughs> that you're you're bringing somebody – you refer to yeah, a really, really good one. I, I actually have Vince Scully on uh, speed dial at all times, so he'll be joining us. <laughs> Vince's no, going to do won't. it for us. That no. would be great. Tyler will be doing play-by-play in a way. It's really going to just be a conversation between the two of us. We're not going to sit here and tell you – how Casey Mize threw a really good splitter on that 2-2 count when it's a, a virtual version of him. But we'll talk about what makes Casey Mize a good pitcher if he comes into the game. If we decide to draft him, we'll see how that goes. Uh, because one thing about MLB The Show is it has its own player ratings. And we can sit here and just draw, draft the top 100 from MLB.com. But it's more interesting to look at the game itself and try to build the best prospect roster we can out of what the game is giving us yeah um so one feature this year is that a lot of minor leaguers are included that's really cool that's cool for those minor leaguers we talked to tyler stevenson about that he's now on the 40-man roster he was going to be included anyway but uh it's cool for him to play as himself i know a lot of guys back home are doing that nowadays um we're going to try to build our own rosters out of that and it'll be a little bit different than maybe you would have been expecting because we're trying to beat each other we're trying to build these rosters and then sit back and see what happens so we'll be reacting in real time we don't know what's going to happen uh it won't be live so it's not like you can send in questions we'll answer them on air um we're going to be recording our conversation over the game um but it will be broadcast out live so you'll be able to watch it as it happens uh, without skipping forward and then it'll be available all over the place uh afterwards as well so you can rewatch if you want if you don't miss the first broadcast you can come back to it all that kind of fun stuff but uh, it'll be really fun i'm really looking forward to what how we can make this work uh it it seems like we're going to be able to be able to do this draft next week and then the game after that uh but keep it posted we'll keep you guys in the loop uh, as everything falls into place it's going to be a whole bunch of fun and uh we're excited to, to get it done and um obviously to celebrate my win this is what we're excited for this could very easily turn folks. into like a series of some sort <laughs> yeah and i don't know how yeah we would we do make that i was i had other ideas of picking like divisions out of a hat so let's say I pick out the NL Central and you pick out the AL West, and okay. you can only build rosters out from of players those from that. Prospects. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Something like that. I also had the thought of if we uh, built possible rosters for certain teams that we anticipated being extremely talented teams for this year, whether it's, you know, Amarillo against Montgomery or something like that, uh, where we have an idea of what those rosters would have looked like. And we could pit those teams against each other uh, from certain organizations. That's a, a possible thing. We're just, we're, uh, we're spitballing live on the topic. We're, we're spitballing live. Are privy. This is also to say that it's not a fully formed idea. Yet. Right. So if, if <laughs> right. there's something you want to see, let us know and, and, and we'll evolves. take it into consideration. Yeah. Everything evolves. You know, I uh, today we're recording this on Wednesday the 15th, uh, Jackie Robinson Day, of course. But today I had the, the second installment of uh, the, the Logo Series stories go up on the site. And um, after the first one last week, uh, did a story on Rochester, which is a, a team, of course, that has been called the Red Wings since 1928, which is the longest tenured, consistently used team name to be in the International League over all that time. I got talking with Josh Jackson uh, and Dan Marinas, one of our editors, after that ran, and uh, especially in conversations with Josh, although Dan put it perfectly, Dan said, Josh and I have discussed a lot of times what a fool's errand it is to try to put specific parameters on minor league history stuff because so many things 
uh, change over the course of history. And today's story is a perfect example. The Nashville Sounds are the longest tenured team name in the Pacific Coast League. So they're the subject of this story. However, Nashville started its first few years as a double-A team. Then they moved up to triple-A. And then they were actually not in the Pacific Coast League until the dissolution of the third triple-A league, the American Association, in the late 90s. So technically, among teams that are in the PCL and have been in the PCL with the longest name uh, for that time, that's Tacoma. Tacoma has been the Rainier since 95. Nashville didn't move into the league until 98. So by the original parameters for these stories, that would have been Tacoma. But we kind of figured... We're in a delayed start to this season. We we're coming up with ideas for fun things to do. Like, why don't we relax this a little bit? And that opens up so many more story possibilities for us. So, uh, you know, I know I had a guy email uh, and tweet at me today to tell me that the Rochester story was wrong because Buffalo's team name is actually oldest. Yeah, Buffalo and Indianapolis have older team names. They weren't in the International League for all of that time. And so that was the parameter for that story. But now just taking away some of the qualification. It's really just a lazy way of me getting to write more logo stories now. So I don't know why I didn't <laughs> just do that in the first place. Well, now, now we know this and the, like every league, the amount of people will be tweeting you, but what about X? What about right, Y? Exactly. It's just going to be more fodder for the back end. So all um, that to say, just like the game, all of these ideas evolve. So we can come up with a prospect all-star team for our first matchup that I'll win. And then, uh, you know, later on, maybe we do the division thing, like Sam said, and I'll win that one. And then maybe the team's thing, like I was saying, and I'll win that one. Well, I don't know about all of that. <laughs> Half of those ideas were good. Everything you said about, and then I'll win that one is, is bad. Um, but yeah, but, but we won't turn this into like, this is, this will creep into the podcast next week for a draft. Right. I think after that, it'll be, we'll talk about it on the show here and there. Um, but it'll be fully of its own volition off to the side. Uh, so don't expect this to turn into MLB, the show before the show right. podcast, video Ooh. game, whatever. Or should it turn into that so we can get a sponsorship out of it? I'm just saying, if Sony San Diego, how is many listening. times we've talked about Dunkin' Donuts on this podcast? Even <laughs> Sorry, it's just Dunkin' now. Um, so with that, uh, we got some fun stuff coming up for you on uh, on this week's episode and along through the next couple of weeks uh, and uh, well beyond that, obviously, as we continue to wait out the uh, the COVID nineteen coronavirus pandemic, and we hope wherever you are tuned into the show before the show this week, you're safe and you're healthy, and your friends and family are the same. Um, and uh, we got a lot of good stuff coming up for you today. So, without further ado, we're uh, gonna move into our first interview segment this week. Tyler Stevenson, the third ranked prospect in the Cincinnati Reds organization, really fun conversation with the Reds prospect and uh, the young star catcher who may be in Cincinnati before the end of the year. Depending on how things go uh, across the world of baseball, Tyler Stevenson joins the show next. As an official partner of Minor League Baseball, Nationwide is here from life's first pitch to the seventh inning stretch. Whether you're looking for protection for your house, car, pet, or small business, Nationwide offers a wide range of products and support to make sure you're getting the right coverage for your specific needs. Visit Nationwide.com for more information on how we can help take care of what you have today and plan for what's ahead. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company, Columbus, Ohio. To the Cincinnati Reds organization we had on this week's episode of the Minor League Baseball Podcast, and there we find the third-ranked prospect in that system, catcher Tyler Stevenson, who is set to head into the 2020 campaign, coming off a breakout year in 2019, and instead now we're all sitting around doing nothing and talking about baseball. But uh, Tyler, welcome to the show, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm hang I'm hanging in there making the most out Good. of everything. 
So that is, that is what we like to hear. So tell us, you know, we kind of kick uh, all of our interviews off this way these days. Tell us where you are and, and kind of what you're doing, what you've been up to the last few weeks in spring training uh, was pulled to a halt. Yeah, well, I'm in, I'm in Atlanta, um, just back at home right now. And um, pretty much just working out and staying in baseball shape. So just kind of taking everything day by day and just trying to figure out just like everybody else when we're going to kick back up there are so many kind of limited options right now of what guys are are able to do and you know we've had stories up on the site of uh of prospects who have kind of built their own mounds or trying to find facilities that they can use and do all that kind of stuff what have you been doing to stay uh you know somewhat ready obviously when we get to baseball season there will be a ramp up period where you guys will get kind of an abbreviated version of spring training presumably but right now how do you how do you try to keep in uh as much game ready form as you can well, I, I was kind of fortunate enough that the uh, the place I work out at, um, obviously everything in Atlanta is pretty much shut down. Um, but he actually let us take home some some equipment. Um, so for the most part, I've got everything I need for workouts, and I just have everything set up in my basement and just go at it in there. And I mean, it's I mean it's perfect. I mean, it's everything I need. Um, I think the biggest change and kind of the hardest part is just hitting and uh, everything like that because um places i've hit at in the off season they're all shut down and like my high school um i would go up there and use the indoor facilities um but they uh they're technically shut down and there's been cops rolling around and like kicking people out um if you're there so um so really i was kind of fortunate enough that my uh my neighbor um, I, I think he's in eighth grade. He's got one of those like soft toss nets. <laughs> so, um, I, I mean, I've got a tee at home and just pretty much going in there, put it in my backyard and just hit. And like when I first came home, I thought about like building a cage in my backyard just because, like, I mean, it, literally everything's shut down as well as pretty much the whole country. And, um, so I went and try to get a quote and see how much that cost and that was going to cost way too much so i was just like yeah, I'll, I'll make it work um i mean i feel good obviously it's kind of a struggle for everybody right now but it's it's fun to like obviously see everybody post about it and just what creative ways that everybody's kind of doing stuff and i mean you see people with doing workouts with like just big bags of sand and i mean it's kind of fun to like change it up just because we're so used to the normal, just going into a weight room and just cranking out weights and doing all this stuff. So it's it's cool to see everybody being create, creative about it. Okay, we have to get the story of this neighbors. You have a neighbor who is an eighth grade because someday long down the road, that kid is going to tell the story of like, yeah, we live next door to this guy who you may have heard of, longtime major leaguer Tyler Stevenson, who just happened to come over during the coronavirus crisis and borrow my soft toss net. Like, how did that whole thing go down? Because yep. that is amazing. Well, my mom, I actually think, reached out to his uh, his mom. I mean, my parents are really close with them, and um, I think I don't think my my mom and his mom walk every morning. So I don't know if they. I'm sure she was probably just talking with her, and um, I don't know. I know he played baseball when he was younger. I'm not sure if he still plays currently, um, but he just had the soft toss net, and my mom said that they have it, and he doesn't use it. So it's obviously better than nothing. <laughs> I didn't really have any other choice. And obviously if he didn't have that, I was probably just going to go on Amazon and buy something of that nature. 
um, because that's pretty much the best you can do right now. Everything's <laughs> shut down. That's so good. And when you're uh, hitting, it, it, it's fun. Yeah, when you're hitting into that net, we talk so much during spring training about guys trying to improve certain aspects of their game, trying to get the ball in the air more, trying to work on stances, stuff like that. What do you focus on when you're hitting just basically into a, a kid's net just in your backyard? I'm pretty much I can't hit anything in there. It's line drives <laughs> right back <laughs> up the middle or else I'm going to hit my neighbors or the people's house behind us. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's not ideal and obviously it'd be great to have a big old cage in my backyard and stuff. But I mean, it, it's just, I mean, I feel good. I mean, I still feel good. And obviously I felt good in spring training and how I left. So I just kind of continued just to stay in baseball shape and continue to throw and do everything I can. And obviously who knows when we'll get a phone call or whatnot. And then I don't, I mean, I, I'm not sure how long we're going to have until we have to report us if it's going to be like, Hey, yeah, you're going to Arizona tomorrow. <laughs> or if it's obviously, I'm sure it's probably not going to be like that. But obviously, once everything kind of hops or opens back up, like at least give a little bit of time to go up to my high school, go over to somewhere that obviously has bigger cages and either a machine or somebody to throw BP, just so can see that again. Uh-huh. Let's take a step back to before all this happened, before spring training got banged, because it was an interesting one for you. You got added to the 40-man roster last November. Uh, this was your first camp as a member of the 40-man roster, officially not, you know, you're no longer non-roster invitee. Mm-hmm. You're you're part of the roster. Uh, you have a good spring, by all accounts. You're going six for 16, a homer, three doubles. You only struck out once. What was it like being a part of the roster, being in that clubhouse, and uh, what, what do you feel like you were building – towards uh before spring training got canceled yeah i mean it was like so i guess last year was i guess technically my first big league camp and um obviously it was a non-roster at that point um but so last year was the first year of our new uh, coaching staff so um it was really beneficial last year obviously getting to like jr house who's our new catching coach like obviously david bell manager and dj as our pitching coach and so just kind of get to know them and understand their minds and everything. And um, so I got a little glimpse of it last year in spring training. And then um, really this off season, when I got put on roster um, just how involved JR was like in the off season, just sending me programs and catching drills, all this stuff. Just so um, when we come into spring training, uh, we can perfect those and, I mean, it was great. I mean, just all the information that we have and to sit back and learn from Tucker and Kurt, um, just how knowledgeable they are and what they know and just to kind of sit back and obviously make the most out of it and just take it all in. And you also had kind of a unique situation in that spring training got canceled officially on March 12th. You were officially Mm -hmm. optioned three days later. Uh, (laughs) Not like anybody was expecting you to make the camp at, you know, out of spring. I know you just mm-hmm. mentioned Tucker Barnhart, Kurt Castley, even Kyle Farmer, really good catchers yep. on that major yep. league roster. But what was it like to find out you had been optioned after camp was already out? Yeah, it was definitely pretty, uh, pretty different. Just received a phone call. Um, but I mean, I, like at the end of the day, like obviously 
goal was to be in the big leagues, and obviously I wanted to come into spring training and make a statement. And I believe that I did, and I felt good about how I played. And I mean, but I like already pretty much known that I was going to start the season in AAA. Um, so obviously it was it was different, but I mean, David Bell, our manager, called and said nothing but great things and stuff. So I mean, it was, it was the what everybody had to do at that time, just because no one was expecting this. Tyler, this time right now for you guys, you know, it, it's kind of uh, it's the same that I think a lot of people across every career field are going through um, in trying to interact with, you know, in effect, coworkers and superiors, bosses, that type of stuff. How much do you guys get a chance to uh, to talk with your coaches or be in contact? You know, we uh, on the, the MLB, the MILB side, we have Zoom calls and, and conference calls and stuff that we mm-hmm. go through, you know, just trying to stay up with each other. Um, how often do you guys get to do that is there kind of a set structure to that or is it just kind of you communicate whenever you're able to communicate so we um we're actually in a big group message and every monday and thursday um all of the catchers jr who's the um catching coach um sometimes dj pitching coaches in there um like our minor league catching coordinator corky um i mean pretty much everybody who's involved with catchers um we're all in a zoom call Monday and Thursday. And, um, I mean, it's good. I mean, it's something to look forward to every week, just to obviously change it up instead of sit in the house and do nothing. But I mean, we'll sit there and talk, like we'll, we'll have different topics to talk about and we'll go over some certain guys and, um, whatnot. And I mean, it, it's good just to talk baseball with all of them and just make the most out of this time and just some expectations and just kind of what, everybody's looking forward to this year once we get going let's talk about last season a little bit uh you go to to double a chattanooga for the first time and a fantastic season there 89 games a 285 average 372 on base percentage 410 slugging percentage um double a obviously is is really that first level where you kind of figure out uh oh these are some real dudes uh across me on a daily basis when you look back on last season and being able to to be so consistently good for chattanooga what what enabled that you're coming off of a year uh with daytona the year before that you with Dayton and in 80 games really really good numbers as well but to go to double a and be so good what enabled that last year I think it's just, honestly just trust myself and like obviously everybody talks about that jump to uh to double a and stuff but I mean honestly I think just the preparation and just the process of I mean for me personally like I think the jump is everything that you make make it so I've never been caught up throughout, like during the middle of the season and stuff. It's just every year I've gone to the next level and just continue to just trust myself and just have confidence in myself. Like, obviously, if you're going into double A, like kind of timid of like, because everybody's talking about how the competition is all good and everything. Like, obviously, you're going to be, your playing ability is probably going to reflect that. But it's at the end of the day, it's still baseball and you still got to do the fundamentals right and, Obviously, like, we played some guys this year who had years of big league experience, and, like, obviously they're very good and still very good, and it's just as you continue to go up, guys just continue to get better, and it's just they're more consistent. So, obviously, like, the big thing I can tell, like, in my lower levels when I kind of first got drafted, it was just kind of not being prepared every at-bat, but just, like, especially coming from a catcher, like – say they, I don't know, they score five runs, it's been a long inning, and I'm just grinding, blocking balls and everything, and then I'm leading off to start the inning. 
And then I got to go run in there, take my gear off. The catcher's throwing down, and I'm still putting batting gloves on, going out. And then <laughs> next thing you know, I, I can I can take a breath and finally breathe. And then it's like, okay, I've got two strikes on me. Then I, I just kind of dug myself in a hole. But just kind of going up to the plate, just being ready to hit from pitch one, and just you kind of obviously you're more aggressive and stuff. But as you continue to go up, like guys are too good nowadays to just let them to watch pitches down the middle. Yeah. So, I mean, you just have to be locked in from the get-go and be ready. You talk about being able to move up level to level uh, between seasons and not during seasons. How do you think that that has helped, um, you know, making those jumps in season? And obviously at some point you'll probably have to do that from the the AAA level to the major league level, hopefully sooner rather than later. But to be able to kind of go in, you know, in 2017 you're focused on the Midwest League. In 2018 you're focused on the Florida State Mm -hmm. League. Last year you get to do the Southern League wire to wire. Um, How does that help in development with um, being just locked into one level at a time and not, you know, having to make that mid-season jump where all of a sudden you're trying to make big adjustments in June or July or August. Yeah, I mean, especially from the catching standpoint, just the guys that I've kind of been with since since Dayton in terms of pitchers, it's been pretty much the same guys. So, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing, especially if I were to go up just learning a whole new staff. I mean, I think that would honestly be the biggest adjustment and um, just getting familiar with the guys and, obviously to be in camp again this year and just to play a lot and get a, get a a bunch of reps and just to catch bullpens for different guys, just because it is so close and it's like, you're going to have to sit there and be on the same page with the pitcher, especially at the big league level. The last thing you want to do is try to go into a big league game and not know anything about the guy. So it's just kind of getting familiar with everybody and it just makes that, I mean, it makes everything so much easier. When we talk about going year to year in your career, one thing that obviously stands out for a lot of people, especially Reds fans, is your ability to stay healthy the last couple of years. You've had concussion in your past. You've had wrist problems. You had thumb problems. But based at least on your transaction page, no injury list time in either 2018 or 2019. What work have you put in to get to the point where you can, as a catcher, be playing you know, 80 plus games a season, uh, consistently the last two years. I think the biggest, um, I think the biggest adjustment was that year in Daytona. So it was technically my first full season. Um, like I know that year before in Dayton, I think it was like August that I got hurt. So I mean, I was playing really well. Then obviously sliding in, sliding in second and, um, sprained ligament in my thumb. And it's just, that was tough because I was very happy with how the season was going. And then I go into Daytona and I don't know if you've been in Daytona in July and August, but uh, (laughs) it's not cool to say the least. So, I mean, Oh, I mean, there was times, I mean, like I had ever, after every game, I had to lay my catching gear out in the, uh, uh, in the locker room just for it to to be dry by the next, Oh, I mean, it was, (laughs) I mean, it, it's it's part of it, but I, I've within the past couple of years, I've really taken serious or just like nutrition and um, just working out and stuff to just maintain my strength throughout the year. And um, so, I mean, I even during spring training and just throughout the year, like last year, and I was going to do it again this year, um, just working out every day, doing something. Um, I mean, it doesn't have the volume doesn't have to be 
maxing out every day. Um, but obviously some days you're a little more fatigued. So you just do lighter stuff, but just continue to stay moving. And on off days, maybe lifting a little heavier and stuff. But, um, I mean, it, it's funny to kind of sit and watch the like NFL draft stuff. Cause everything with Tua and they're, they're talking yeah. about everything with mm-hmm. Tua being injury prone and all this stuff. And it's like, I mean, I understand it. Like I got hurt my first two years and Tua got hurt, but like, I'm not speaking for my, I mean, not only for myself, but every other athlete, but just, it's not like we're going out there and trying to get hurt. Right. So I, mean, I think that's what some, some people kind of make that a negative against players. And I mean, I know football is a different sport and it's very contact. I mean, it, injuries happen. I mean, it's not like I went into the season being like, Oh yeah, I'm going to get a concussion and then have <laughs> wrist surgeries in the next year. Sprain a ligament in my thumb. I mean, it's, it, it's something that happens and obviously you don't wish that upon anybody, but sometimes stuff happens. I mean, it, it's, I can't help it if a pitcher so 100 and he throws the ball up and in and hits me in the hand. Like, so, I mean, I think that's, it's, it's just funny to hear everybody talking about Tua and stuff. And I mean, it's like, a, I mean, the, the dude's probably one of the best college football quarterbacks of all time. And he's getting negative remarks about being hurt and stuff. And it's like, it's not like he went in, to the season and was going to say, Oh yeah, I'm going to dislocate my hip or something like that. Like, so. And kind of building off that too, you had a full season last year at Chattanooga and then the reds tell you you're going to the Arizona fall league and you you get to add Mm -hmm. 13 games there as well with, with Glendale. Uh, You came away from that with the Darnell Stenson award, which is pretty neat as well. Um, Just talk us through your AFL experience and what do you feel like that helped, to do to to add on some extra at bats, prove yourself, have an OPS above 900 against quality competition there, and what that did to to vault you forward going into 2020. I mean, it was honestly one of the highlights of my minor league career, and um, we we're fortunate enough to have the manager that I had in Dayton and Loe. He was the manager there um, for our team, so um, that definitely helped. Just, I mean, I've known him for years. Um, Bol- Luis Bolivar and stuff. And so it was, it, it really helped out just in terms of being familiar with him. And he, see, he, he seen me play for two years when I was there and stuff. So I could talk with him about anything. And the, the group of guys was great. And um, like I was staying at a house with a whole bunch of guys that I work out with in Atlanta um, that are with different teams like Seth Beer, Brandon Mars, Jemai Jones, uh, Riley Gillum, and Nick Nider. Um, so it was fun. Like, yeah. So, I mean, to come home and most of us have the same agent and stuff. So, I mean, I mean, we've all known each other. We grew up playing with or against each other and like Riley Gillum and I went to the high school together. I mean, so I've known him for years and, um, so, I mean, it was, it was fun to experience that with all of them and to play against some of them and stuff. It was fun, but I mean, just the group of guys I was out there with our team and, to be playing against some obviously high level guys and um, to see some guys with AAA experience and to catch some guys, some older guys. And I think that was the biggest takeaway is um, especially in my role, just to be catching with some older guys, um, especially to make that like AAA or big league jump, like some guys with some better stuff and some older guys. So I think that was a good transition to help me go into spring training. Um, just feeling confident with myself. 
And I'm glad you mentioned catching there because uh, we should talk a little bit about defense. You're a big guy. That's not breaking news. Anybody who's seen a picture, you're six foot four, <laughs> big for a catcher, which some pitchers I know like bigger targets like that. Um, but how much did it help to work in the AFL with so many different talented pitchers come into spring? You're working with dozens of pitchers again, trying to learn them. How do you feel like you've grown the last couple of years defensively with these additional opportunities? A ton. I mean, I know I've talked with uh, Corky Miller, who's our minor league coordinator, our catching coordinator. And um, just going back and seeing film, um, like from high school, just thinking, I'm, like, as well as any high schooler, just thinking, like, oh, yeah, catching's easy. And, like, to really understand the fundamentals of catching and breaking everything down, now it's just like, holy smokes, like, I knew nothing back then. <laughs> I mean, just how everything correlates with one another in terms of flexibility, like getting in the proper stance. And if you're in the wrong stance, then you're not going to block as well, or you're not going to frame as well, or you're not going to throw runner, or like you're, you're not going to be as consistent throwing. So it's just really breaking everything down to a T and just perfecting it. And I mean, I know I'm, I still have work to do and I'm not perfect at it and I'm continuing to work on it. Um, during this time and every day we're doing some type of drill and stuff. But I mean, from where I began to now, um, definitely some strides. And one interesting thing about last year's AFL was the robot umpires. Um, you guys got to play with them a little bit. I know they're bringing them to the FSL whenever the FSL returns, but as a catcher, so much of your value now is represented in your ability to frame the pitch. And when that's taken away, what was it like in, I'm, I don't know how many games you got to actually catch for the robot umpire, but what was it like playing under that system? Yeah. So it was at the, uh, the salt river stadium, which is the diamondbacks and uh, Rockies. And um, I would play there probably a handful of games. And like, so the all-star game was there and um <laughs> It was definitely different to say the least. Um, but obviously, if that's something that they're going to take into MLB baseball, it's going to have to be an adjustment for everybody. Um, but it, I mean, it was just totally different than before. And like, especially like when I'm either hitting or catching, like if a ball just misses or like, I don't know, I, I am very vocal with the umpire just wanting to know um, like how far off was that pitch or like how much more will you go or like just to understand the feel of the zone and stuff. And they had an earpiece in and there was just like, all it says is ball strike. And that's what he, that's what the umpire will do. And so that was, that was a tough, it was tough to kind of have that communication and stuff. But um, yeah, it was, it was definitely weird because there was a, um, I think probably like a two or three second delay, like from the pitch, like when I would catch it. So it was just kind of uh, like, okay, like if it's a strike, do I need to like throw it around? Or like, I think there was actually one time where I threw a ball back to the pitcher and here he rung up strike three. <laughs> so um, that was pretty funny. All right. Well, we've got uh, these last two for you, Tyler. This one, you, you were a first round pick in 2015. Uh, of the Cincinnati Reds, uh, obviously hit a lot of levels on your way up here now on the 40-man roster. I feel like coming into this year, there was a lot of optimism about the Reds. I know the NL Central is pretty loaded, but some moves they've made. Sonny Gray was really good last year. Um, 
some of the other additions they've made seemed like they were ready to contend. How do you feel like the organization has grown since you were first picked in 2015? And how close did you really feel to contributing uh, given your time in big league camp this spring? Yeah, I mean, just from the atmosphere, I mean, I can't really speak from like last year, anytime at the big league level. Um, but with this new coaching staff, the energy that they bring and the knowledge that they have and information that we're now given, um, I mean, especially with um, adding Castellanos and Shogo um, and some other guys. Um, I mean, I, I am very excited to watch and be a part of this team for the years to come. And I mean, it's the energy in terms of that um, clubhouse. It's, it's been great. I mean, I don't know what it's obviously been like years before, but I mean, my time with everybody, I mean, everybody is fired up. I mean, everybody's looking forward to playing and obviously representing the Reds and really looking forward to winning the division. All right, Tyler, we'll end on this one. I know you teased it a little bit in terms of the AFL, but we've been asking everybody this, especially with there being no minor league baseball now, uh, given your five plus years now in, in uh, minor league baseball, what is your favorite minor league baseball memory? Ooh. Probably hitting a walk-off homer in uh, Daytona. That I mean, just something everybody – I mean, every kid when they're younger dreams about hitting a walk-off homer, like bases loaded, bottom of the ninth, World Series, Game 7. <laughs> I mean, every every baseball kid has had that going through their mind at some point in the front yard or whatever. Um, obviously, it wasn't a grand slam. It was a solo home run, but still, um, that was fun. I, mean, I remember hitting it and then um, thinking I was like, that might go. And then it was just like, I don't know, once I think officially saw it was over, I just completely blacked out. And <laughs> I don't know what happened after that in terms of once I hit home plate and bucket of water gets dumped on me. And it was awesome. That is pretty great. It was fun. Tyler Stevenson is the third-ranked prospect in the Cincinnati Reds organization, and uh, when things get started this year, is likely headed to AAA Louisville to kick off the 2020 campaign whenever we get back to baseball. And, uh, Tyler, thanks so much for the time, man, and uh, enjoy uh, as much as you can the rest of the time back at home, and we'll be uh, seeing you on a field sometime in the not-too-distant future. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Benjamin Hill joins the show uh, for uh, a pretty um, solid week of some good stuff coming up from Ben. It's always a solid week of good stuff coming up from Ben, but there's a lot for us to talk about today. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing all right. Yeah, you know, I'm all about solid weeks. Some weeks are more solid than others, but there's always some level of solidity to what I do. You know, otherwise, it's what? It's ephemeral. It just drifts away. It just dissipates. We can't have that. I know. I'm with you. Um, and uh, as the, the two guys who think most on the staff about our own, um, you know, brief fleeting uh, time on this planet in a cosmic blink of an eye, uh, I'm glad that we can do something that's lasting, like these podcast interviews. Yeah, absolutely. Something that leaves a mark while we are no longer here. I can hear files will be floating around the ether. I can hear Sam going, All right, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Was my heavy sigh coming across that clearly? Uh, 
Uh, it's another edition of the Mortality Podcast with Benjamin Hill and Tyler Mont. Um, well, Ben, let's uh, let's dive right in. You're doing a, a really cool piece that is actually up on the site uh, with uh, or, or is going up on the site. I'm not sure by the time this drops if it'll be up yet. But looking back on your road trips from 2019, which um, I think a lot of people would think, uh, oh, how many road trips can one person take? There's probably just a few in there. But you take so many trips. This is a lot of stuff that's all jammed uh, into this one look back, which is fantastic because there are so many different angles and things you get to cover and uh, and reminisce on. Yeah, you know, um, all this stuff is, you know, for long-time listeners of the podcast, all these uh, stories I'm compiling right now are, you know, for the most part, things we've talked about all throughout the last season, all the different ballparks I've visited, all those experiences. Um but, you know, this is the time of year when normally, of course, um, you know, I'd be announcing my road trip schedules, probably going on a first trip uh, by the end of the month or very early May, um, recruiting designated eaters, getting the whole thing going. Uh, so now I was like, yeah, I want to write about road trips. And, of course, there's no new road trips to undertake. So um, this is something I've done in other seasons, and I hadn't gotten around to it yet. So good timing. Uh, but I'm just putting together, like, this master article of 2019 road trips, every single article I wrote in conjunction. Um, and I'm going through it right now, and it's tedious to put together. But I, I think uh, hopefully people will enjoy it. You know, it's a it's more of a, a gateway or a portal into, you know, my world and what I do, um, you know, just compiling all these links. And, you know, of course, the trips I took last year were kind of based around the new ballparks, you know, Fayetteville, Amarillo, Las Vegas. But then there were much, you know, other experiences through that. And I'm, you know, going through it right now and, you know, just looking at these things I wrote from, you know, Amarillo, like, oh, that's when I interviewed the guy who wrote the team theme song. And that's when I interviewed the PA announcer who's also a country musician. Oh, and there's the sunrise dog, you know, which is topped with country gravy and a fried egg and on and on and on and on. It's actually, you know, it's kind of bittersweet because we're not there, you know, at games right now or not seeing games or not on the road. It makes me miss this kind of stuff, but it's also making me feel kind of good about what I've done in the past because you know when you're doing it you can just kind of be like oh this is something I got to do it's an obligation and it's good to look back on it and be like hey maybe this has value and other people enjoy it too yeah that that gets to what I was going to ask about which is the great thing about writing this now is that you are a little bit removed from it we talked so much to you from parking lots and from hotels and times when you are at the place and you're just like giving a quick review of the ballpark but in putting this all together now you're removed from all these trips um what has stood out most about 2019 in the way that you thought you remembered it and the way you remember it now having written this piece yeah you know as i said it just as i was just saying really um yeah the idea to look at it almost as if it wasn't me who initially did it and maybe look at it with more of a fan's eyes instead of a you know, writer's eyes um, has been really good. And it has felt so much more fun, honestly, than I remember it. Because, of course, I have fun on the road. But, you know, I'm also, while I'm having fun, I'm also thinking about, well, how am I going to deliver this message of the fun I'm having? And that, ironically, takes some of the fun away. But looking at it uh, with, um, you know, with some time, with, with this year, um, it's just making me think, you know, first of all, the, the three new ballparks, new ballparks are always fun to visit, but um, I think they were real standouts last year in different ways. Um, you know, Fayetteville with a downtown ballpark, a small footprint, train tracks on each side, you know, real unique, very loud inside, you know, very unique, kind of small ballpark, but with a lot of energy inside. Amarillo, you know, much more wide open spaces, um, but the most intense 
kind of happy to have a team fan base I think I've ever seen. And I think I'm f- feeling particularly, uh, you know, um, nostalgic about my visit to Amarillo and Las Vegas, where I got to join our colleague, uh, Josh Jackson. And, uh, you know, he joined me on that trip and we were able to collaborate on some stuff. And that was, you know, as we said at the time, probably the most major league ballpark you'll see in minor league baseball, you know, really high class, uh, high level Vegas hospitality. Um, you know, those are, I think, three great ballparks to contextualize travels. And then to be able to go to places like like Albuquerque and El Paso or Richmond and Lynchburg and uh, all these other places kind of um, incidental to these new ballparks. I mean, it was a great experience. I'm kind of feeling like, wow, I am living the dream. People tell me that all the time, but I don't think about it when I'm doing it because I'm just trying to get through the dream. Uh, but that's living the dream. We're all living the dream, right? We're alive, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it is true, though, like, and we've had these conversations um, on air and off air and everything, but um, talking about how much you've learned – during the last few weeks to appreciate stuff and i i hate being you know just look for the silver linings and and all of that during a a terrible international pandemic but we do all have to try to find things to be positive about and it is kind of neat to see the way teams and players and broadcasters and fans think back on all of the their favorite memories and the things they enjoy most and uh and embrace all of that and appreciate it in a way that i don't think we do otherwise when things feel normal uh absolutely i mean i'm i'm experiencing that right now with this article i'm writing but i mean you hit the nail on the head tyler i think all of us uh, no matter what it is we do specifically are appreciating uh things that are easy to take for granted you know as we're not able to do them and as we're talking about them uh, in our bedrooms, well, in my case, in my bedroom while looking out the window. And it's a beautiful day, for the record. One of my uh, favorite things that is currently going on on social media is uh, Ben's got a, a thread going right now on what would have been night. And, uh, you know, Sam and I last week talked about going into opening day, what would this day be like, uh, where prospects are, what we're most excited for, and all of that. Um, this is kind of a collection of the, the promotions that would have gone on from night to night in the minor leagues. Uh, for example, last night, uh, the Mississippi Braves would have staged their first Mustard Monday, in which fans received a commemorative mustard packet on their way into the ballpark, which I don't get at all. Um, but this is a fantastic thread. Uh, Turbo would have made his debut. The new bat dog for the Bowling Green Hot Rods is a fantastic follow on social media if you don't follow him already. This is a really fun thread you got going, though. Yeah, you know, uh, it's a little bittersweet as well. But, you know, one of my big off-season you know, duties, obligations, uh, every single off-season is, you know, I go through, uh, you know, minor league baseball team promo schedules and create my own spreadsheet of notable promos to write about or, you know, attempt to write about or to tip others to perhaps write about. And uh, even, you know, I wasn't done that task yet, um, you know, when when the world changed and uh, when it was clear there was going to be a postponed start to the season. But I was so deep into my spreadsheet project, I just kept entering promos into the spreadsheet till it was done, until I'd visited every team's promo schedule. And then once I'd done that, I was like, why did you do this? And um, part of it's probably my own kind of OCD, <laughs> obsessive compulsive uh, uh, desire to, to, to complete a task at all costs. But I think part of it was I do want to document, you know, what we would be experiencing right now in minor league baseball, you know, in the same way teams are playing games on their schedule on MLB, the show, um, you know, as like the best substitute they can. I, I kind of want to do this Twitter set thread just to say, this is what would be happening. This is uh, what will we we'd be doing. And, uh, you know, to think uh, last night, 
you know, the, it would be Taco Tuesday in Fresno and the Grizzlies would be playing as the tacos and uh, the Albuquerque isotopes would be playing as the mariachis for the Copa de la Diversion um, identity. Um, goofy theme nights already coming into play. Uh, you know, Tuesday would have been Lexington Legends uh, halfway to bald night, which I don't even understand. You know, we've heard of halfway to holidays. <laughs> yeah, but it's halfway to bald night. So I don't know if that means it's six months to actual bald night or if it means it's paying tribute to people who are half halfway bald. bald. Yeah. Um, halfway bald, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a little, you know, because we have like halfway to all sorts, you know, halfway to Halloween type promotions in the minors. So halfway to bald night, I'm kind of uh, a little unclear on, but that's the thing. A lot of these promos will be rescheduled. Some won't, uh, you know, we'll see them again and appreciate them more. But for now, I kind of want to have this Twitter thread, you know, hashtag what would have been night. Um, it just kind of as a log of, uh, the experiences we would have been having across the country in minor league baseball, uh, you know, in a, in a small way, a record of, uh, you know, what we're losing each night, uh, from the promotional end of things. Well, out of the ones you've done so far in this first week, I think my favorite would have been the Fred Hayes bobblehead in Biloxi. Um, Fred Hayes being the lunar module pilot. Anybody who's ever seen Apollo 13 knows Fred Hayes. Uh, but of the ones that have you've tweeted out so far or ones that you haven't tweeted out that are coming, which would have been your favorite here from the first week plus? Oh, that's a good question. Um yeah, here in the first week, you know, we start off kind of slowly on promos. It's just, uh, you know, opening night is enough of a promo itself. Um, you know, I don't think I'm quite the space buff you are, Sam, but I, I think that's the best bobblehead or probably the best giveaway in the, in the early going, the Fred Hayes. Um, he was a Biloxi native. Um, trying to think what else it would have been really cool to see turbo uh debut in bowling green um the team's done a great job uh, building up his social media profile but you know it'd be great to see him exist in, in real life as well um and i think we'll see a lot of things coming down the line and you know it's kind of a fun exercise every morning for me to wake up and look at my promo spreadsheet and say ah that's what would have happened last night and uh you know, fill in other people as well and, you know, have some fun with it. And, and like everything else with Twitter or like everything else I do with my job, you know, I try to be as collaborative as possible. I love when I hear from teams and fans uh, saying, well, here's what I miss or here's what we would have done or whatever the case may be. So as always, please get in touch with me. I, I, I try to be as, access, as uh, accessible as possible. And I think this is something we can have fun with as the season goes on or as what would have been the season goes on. He is on Twitter at Ben's Biz. Uh, the road trip look back, the what would have been night, uh, the look back, of course, on the site, what would have been night on Twitter. Uh, the working from home journals as well uh, up on the site and uh, Benjamin Hill continuing to churn out some fantastic stuff for us at MILB. And uh, Ben, stay safe and stay healthy. And uh, we'll talk to you next week, man. Sounds great, guys. Always good talking to you. And I uh, hope you're doing well in your respective homes. Continuing on this week with our uh, Minor League Writer of the Week, and we are delighted to welcome back to the show uh, our good buddy Michael Avalon, who's got a fantastic story that is up on the site right now. Today, of course, Jackie Robinson Day. We're recording on April 15th. This one from two days ago, um, so a great lead-in to this week uh, as we honor Jackie Robinson's legacy and uh, the, the game of baseball that has come since he broke the color barrier for the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. Uh, Mike's got a much different story, which is the minor league version of that, or at least one of the minor league versions 
versions of that uh, from 1952 when the Texas League saw its color line broken, at least in its modern era, uh, with the debut of Dave Hoskins on the Dallas Eagles and a great story that's up on the site. Uh, Mike, this one's so fantastic because there are so many of these stories across the minor leagues that are not told and yet are just as impactful Mm -hmm. in so many ways as what happened at the major league level. Uh, And this one is just such a fascinating story that you get to tell on the site. Yeah, it really is. You know, it's funny as I was researching it and, and looking up different things, you know, it's, it's funny that everyone thinks of Jackie Robinson and rightfully so I integrated uh, Major League Baseball integrated organized baseball, you know, 1946 playing with the Montreal Royals and then obviously the next year with the Dodgers, like you said. Um, but there were others. There were other firsts. There were other there were other leagues. You know, the minor leagues was, you know, a different animal. Now, granted, you know, the Dodgers brought up, I think, the next year Campanella, Roy Campanella and then Don Newcomb the year after. So things had started progressing, but it wasn't. And I mentioned this in the story. It wasn't just kind of a snap your fingers, okay, a flood of African-American players and and Hispanics are now, you know, joining the major leagues. It was like a faucet being turned on ever so slowly. And, you know, when researching it, it it really kind of made me think about some of the other minor leagues and, you know, how it wasn't just an overnight type of thing. Uh, Again, like you said, five years after Jackie Robinson is when Dave Hoskins integrated the Texas League. And even that first season, it was just him. Uh, Jose Santiago, who was a fellow teammate of his, who started about a month later, and uh, uh, Bill Greeson, who I mentioned later in the story, who played for Oklahoma City. Those were the only three players uh, who who were African-Americans that played in the Texas League that season. And one interesting story about this, too, is just how it connects so much to other histories of Major League Baseball and not just Jackie Robinson, but you name dropped Satchel Page at one point and how Satchel Page okay. helped get Hoskins into the Texas League. Tell us a little bit about that story and the connection to, to one of the greatest pitchers who ever lived. Right. Well, Dave Hoskins played uh, in the Negro Leagues in the mid-40s. As I mentioned in the story, he was a good player in his hometown of Flint, Michigan, or where he moved. He was born in Mississippi. But uh, so the Cincinnati Clowns and the Negro Leagues uh, noticed him, um, liked what they saw, signed him to a contract. So that started his career in the 40s. And, you know, all those guys, I think, you know, they were that league was different than what we consider a, a normal league now or even organized ball then. It was kind of a barnstorming league. Uh, so a lot of those players knew each other very well. Uh, you know, the likes of Stassel Page, as you mentioned. Hoskins was an outfielder in the uh, Negro Leagues, pitched a little but befriended uh, Page, and Page befriended him, and they kind of, you know, grew together in terms of a relationship of where Page kind of helped him out on the side a little with pitching. And when Page did move into the major leagues with the Cleveland Indians, he, you know, brought it up to uh, Hank Greenberg, the Hall of Fame slugger for the Detroit Tigers, who was the general manager at the time of the Indians, um, and who was looking to integrate as well after Larry Doby had already joined with the Indians in 1948, um, that this guy is worthy of a tryout. And so in essence, Page kind of worked it out that Hoskins was uh, able to get a tryout with Greenberg and the Indians, and Greenberg liked what he saw and uh, signed him to a contract. 
What's really interesting, too, is uh, it was even earlier than that that uh, Dave Hoskins got a tryout with uh, both of Boston's major league teams uh, in the mid-1940s with the Red Sox and the Braves who were there, um, did not sign there. But it wasn't just the Texas League either that he uh, broke the color barrier for. He signed with an unaffiliated team in Grand Rapids, as noted, um, becoming the first uh, African-American player in the Central League then. But he starts to make this climb. Stays in the Central League with Dayton, moves to uh, Class A Wilkes-Barre in the Eastern League uh, a year later after being signed to a minor league contract with Cleveland, uh, and then comes this move in 1952 to Dallas. And uh, the Dallas Eagles owner at the time, a guy named Dick Burnett, was an oil man and really wanted to integrate that league. And it's not just that he made the move to sign Dave Hoskins, and and that was it. It was one player. There are actually multiple players that were signed, and Hoskins was not even the first who was signed for that team that year, Correct. That's right. Ray Neal was uh, an infielder who they'd signed earlier, you know, I guess uh, January or February of 1952. Um, And I I believe looking up the numbers, I don't think I included it in my story, but I I think he hit something like 350 in 1951 in the Negro League. So, you know, they obviously thought this guy had the potential, uh, you know, Burnett, along with the manager of the Eagles, uh, Dutch Meyer. uh, They weren't doing this just as kind of a, you know, a, a sideshow type of thing. They wanted someone that could legitimately help them win. Um, they thought Neil was the guy, but I guess during spring training, he just didn't perform up to the, you know, the level that they thought he could or would um, moving forward. Uh, and then having seen um, Hoskins pitch against the Eagles in an exhibition game uh, that spring, Hoskins was a property of the, uh, of the Indians at the time who had a working agreement with the Eagles but he was not yet on the Eagles. But that caught Burnett's eye, seeing how well he threw in an exhibition game against his own team. And uh, he kind of brought it up to Greenberg. And Greenberg said, yeah, you know, this guy is someone that I think could legitimately help you guys and has the wherewithal to do this for you. And uh, one thing led to another, and uh, the Indians loaned him to the Eagles, and off he went. And one thing that we should stress, too, is – it wasn't just getting into baseball uh, that was difficult and having all these tryouts and all all these other clubs um, saying no to him, obviously. Um, But once he was in the Texas league, life exactly wasn't easy either. You tell this story about Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, which was an area of particular concern, as you put it, uh, home to the sports. There were still Jim Crow laws that had to be dealt with uh, for Hoskins and players like him there. Uh, but tell us the story of what Hoskins did in Shreveport to kind of overcome that and rub uh, Shreveportians or whatever you want to call them, uh, their faces <laughs> in it a little bit. Well, he, he went out there despite getting a couple of threatening letters. Uh, I think he got three letters in the morning if he was supposed to pitch, uh, which was June of 1952. Uh, one was said that he'd be shot if he was in the dugout. Another he'd be shot if he went on the field. And the third one said he'd be shot if he actually went on the mound. Uh, he did not tell anyone in the organization, no coaches, no manager, uh, no players, uh, just kept it to himself, but went out there and pitched that day anyway. And, uh, and won. pitched, uh, pitched a, uh, victory. I think they won three to two, uh, before it was a record crowd of almost 8,000 or over 7,000 in Shreveport. And, um, according to the Shreveport times, as I mentioned in the story, more than half of that crowd were African-Americans and, uh, the place was just overflowing apparently. Uh, so he uh, kind of shut them up with his performance, so to speak. Yeah, and that touches on what I 
wanted to kind of end on, at least from my perspective, is the impact that this had. It's not just one thing to get more talent into the Texas League and and open up the barriers uh, to allow everybody to participate or a lot more people to participate anyway. But just the impact Hoskins had in terms of attendance. You talked there about having 44 African-Americans in attendance just for that game in Shreveport. Uh, One thing I like in this story is how you weave that in and how many people were coming out just to see him. What kind of impact did Hoskins have on the Texas League and and the fans alone? Uh, Huge. Uh, He kind of became a a celebrity among the African-American population, not only in Dallas, but in all the local towns who, uh, you know, the African-American fans obviously gravitated towards him. I mean, it helped that the guy had a terrific season. He was the best pitcher in the league that year. So obviously that helped. But even if it didn't just, you know, it gave them something to latch on to. Obviously, Jackie Robinson had been uh, in the majors for five years at that point. There had been other African-Americans who had reached the majors. But this was the first time down south where an African-American was playing regularly. Um, You know, Dick Burnett obviously had business, you know, dealings and uh, reasons for the signing other than his own wanting to integrate the league. One of them was attendance, and and it it did its job. Dallas's attendance rose 17% compared to a year earlier. They were the only club that year to top 200,000 total fans. And in the games he pitched, uh, Hoskins pitched, 180,000 more fans attended, uh, which was an average of nearly 6,000 more per game than uh, the usual attendance around the league. So he he really made a big difference. People came out to see him, whether it was whites or African-Americans, but uh, he, he definitely made a difference at the gate. This is a really great story. It is up uh, on the site at MILB.com right now. And uh, Dave Hoskins, I mean, what a, a fascinating guy. If I was, uh, you know, a, a real reporter um, who had the ability to write a book that would be something that people would want to read instead of just like, look at these logos like I write. Um, his his <laughs> baseball life going from Homestead uh, in the Negro Leagues in the, in the mid-40s, then obviously the signing, uh, he did make it to Cleveland by 1953 mm-hmm. and there in 1954. But the places he went after that, he pitched in Indianapolis uh, in the what was then the American Association of AAA. They went to San Diego in the Pacific Coast League. Before it was a AAA league, it was basically a co-major league. Um Went to a, a winter league in Venezuela. He played in Montreal. He played in Mexico. Like, what a fascinating baseball life. And uh, and it's cool. There's a, a line that you, you have in the story, Mike, where you say, you know, he's kind of faded into baseball obscurity. But the neat thing about stories like this is it helps – that not to happen and people now know the story of dave hoskins who didn't know it before uh and it's a, a pretty incredible baseball life for a guy who deserves to be honored uh and was born one my favorite fact from this story uh i will say is that his birth date is listed i know pretty much everywhere as uh august 30 1925 but apparently there are also documents that he was born in 1917 which ordinarily like a player from that time like maybe a year or two here or there that's an eight year difference in however old he was well, uh, we all want to be younger, so I guess when it gets to that point, and you, you do what you, you do, what you got to do. So, yeah, that is true. I was now born in 1993. Everyone, just in case you're wondering. There you go. Yeah, uh, yeah you always look younger. <laughs> Mike Lefloon is uh, on uh, on Twitter at uh, Mike's handle is M Avalone M I L B. Uh, and you can find the story up on the site at MILB.com right now. It's fantastic. Also, if you go to MILB.com uh, slash history, we've got uh, stories on similar subjects to this, which uh, recording this during Jackie Robinson week uh, is always a good time to 
if you're one of the people like the the three of us and so many others at the site who love the historical elements of the game we got some really good stuff uh, up there as well and uh, mike great stuff as always man and uh, and we'll talk to you on uh, on your next one looking forward to it guys thank you Huge thanks, everybody, for joining the show this week. And uh, we're going to get the set to uh, to say goodbye. But before that, this week's Nationwide uh, Top Prospect Fun Fact, Sam. Yeah, so this week's Nationwide t- Prospect uh, Fun Fact, we're, we're turning to Luis Patino. Uh, one interesting thing I've always thought about Luis Patino is he was signed for pretty little money, only $130,000 by the San Diego Padres uh, during the 2016-2017 international spending period, uh, but it, quickly he's become one of the best right-handed pitching prospects in all of baseball. He's currently ranked 27th uh, out of MLB.com's top 100. You put him next to Mackenzie Gore. They played a lot together last year at Class A Advanced Lake Elsinore and Double A Amarillo. Uh, a fearsome twosome, uh, as fearsome a twosome as you're going to find in terms of pitching prospects almost anywhere in the game. Really excited to see what he can do. It was fun to watch him last year at the Futures game I didn't get a vote, but if I did have a vote, I think he would have been my MVP. He was touching upper 90s, uh, really shut down the AL side there in the, the last couple of innings. When it did go to extra innings, it was cool to see him do that. Sam Huff of the Texas Rangers ended up winning the award because he hit the home run. I get that. But I think Patino's stuff was the most standout stuff I saw at last year's Futures game. I say all of that to bring up this. Uh, Luis Patino is from Colombia. Colombia uh, is pretty well known as an athletic country uh, in Latin America. You might think of it more of as, a, as a soccer nation. I know Patino has talked about this in the past about wanting to be a soccer player growing up with soccer, but now he's geared towards baseball, obviously, and he's very close to cracking the majors. As of today, only nine uh, major league pitchers have been born in Colombia. Uh, the top two in terms of war, you probably know pretty well, are Jose Quintana and Julio Tehran. Uh, so Luis Patino could become the 10th pitcher from Colombia ever to reach the majors. Uh, and the bar to become the best pitcher ever from Colombia is not that high. I mean, Jose Quintana is a pretty good pitcher right now. According to baseball reference, his career war is 25.7. Uh, Julio Tehran is 19.7. It's by no means a given that Patino is going to reach those marks. There's some questions about given his size and what his stuff is already. Is it best to just put him in the bullpen? I think he's got enough to be a starter. I would really like to see him fulfill that role, but we'll see how that goes. But the fact that there have only been nine pitchers from his country to reach the majors really says something about what he's up against and what he's overcome to get this far Uh as a pitcher and to be knocking on the door of the majors. We'll, we'll see if he makes it there in 2020. I think if we were having a regular season, he would make it there. Um, but given the potential for a shortened season, then we'll see where the Padres are sitting and, and what decision, the, the decisions they decide to make. Uh, it'll be interesting. But that's kind of this week's fun fact is that there have only been nine Colombian pitchers in the major leagues. Luis Patino could be the 10th. And I'll just throw in another fun fact here. The, the leader in all-time war coming out of Colombia is Edgar Renteria at 32.4. So Luis Patino trying to find his way into that mix uh, coming from that country, and, and we'll keep a close eye on him and, and see if he can crack it here this year or potentially next year in 2021. And Luis Patino and uh, Edgar Renteria share a hometown in Barranquilla in the province of Atlantico where the uh, main stadium is now known as 
Sadio Edgar Renteria, who uh, contributed a bunch of money to a gorgeous facility that is uh, now playing host to uh, to Colombian baseball. And uh, that will wrap us up for this week's episode of the show before the show. Again, big thanks to Tyler Stevenson. Big thanks to, to Benjamin Hill and Michael Avalon for joining us as well. And uh, next week, it it all begins. The end of me and Sam as genial co-hosts of the show and the beginning of our era as bitterest rivals. Tune in next week. <laughs> He's Sam. I'm Tyler. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.